This morning's sermon is going to be brought to us by a very dear friend of mine by the name of Ken Elzinga. I'm going to ask that Ken would go ahead and come on out at this time. Uh, Ken and I have been friends for years. Ken is also the faculty mentor for Steve Garland, who is the wrestling coach on grounds at UVA. Um, Ken is a wrestling fan. He's been to the National Wrestling Tournament. He goes to all of the home wrestling matches. And not only that, and this is probably the most important thing about you, Ken, is that he has now officially been a professor for all three of my kids on grounds. So my youngest daughter, Jacqueline, is in your course right now. And so the real reason we, why I brought you here was that she would get an A. So other than that, I'm going to move your stand right there. Let's give Ken Elzing a warm welcome as he comes. God bless you. Thank you, Pete. And thank you, City Church, for inviting me to preach here. My wife, Terry, who's here today, uh, we're members of a local church. But uh, admired what um, City Church has done in advancing the kingdom of the Lord Jesus here in Charlottesville and around the world. Not only have I known Pete for some time, taught his children, as he mentioned, uh, faculty mentor to Steve Garland, but I also hang out a lot with Pete Bulet and the Chi Alpha kids. Uh, my day job, as Pete mentioned, is being on the faculty at UVA. Uh, I have taught economics to more than 45,000 students, and a lot of them, they hope that studying economics will be financially beneficial to them. <laughs> if some of my students were brutally honest with me, they'd say, Mr. Elzinga, you know about economics. Teach me how to make a lot of money. And as we all know, making money is a means to purchasing goods and services. And that's the conventional way I teach economics. Economics looks at income. Income allows people to buy things now or save their income to buy more things later. But over the years, I've come to have a very different view of why a lot of people work so hard at making money. It's a way of keeping score to see who's winning. Children keep score when they play games. Making money can be a way of keeping score for adults. We've heard the joke, he who dies with the most toys wins. Some of us know people for whom that's not a joke. I became a Christian in graduate school. This brought a lot of surprises in my life. And one of the biggest surprises was realizing that making money is not just about buying things. And making money is not just about keeping score. God cares about money. God cares about work and how we earn money. God also cares about how we use our money, that is, what we spend it on, what we save it for. And God cares about whether we're generous with our money, whether we use it for his purposes or our own. Martin Luther argued that there are three different conversions a follower of Jesus should have. A lot of people don't know about these three conversions. They know about the first one. That's a conversion of the heart. God touches our hearts, shows us our sin and his mercy that was poured out on the cross where Jesus died. The second conversion is a conversion of the mind. We come to learn of God's character. We come to understand what it means to be adopted into his eternal family. The third is a conversion of the pocketbook, or as an economist might put it, a conversion of one's income and wealth. 
When Jesus talked about the impossibility of serving two masters, he said one master was God, the other master was money. Jesus claimed a person could not be devoted to both. So when conversion touches your wallet, your purse, your credit and debit card, your income, your net worth, this means you have abandoned love for this other God that Jesus talked about. And you are devoted to the God of the Bible. I once saw it put this way. When a person's wallet converts, it's because the person finally decided who's their God, where is their treasure. Now, Pete asked me to share with you today about how, by God's grace, I experienced a conversion of the pocketbook. And I won't claim that the conversion is full and complete, but I can tell you that if my story provokes you to have a conversion of the pocketbook similar to mine, you will find this one of the most transforming experiences of your life. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus and have not had this conversion of the heart and the mind, then what I hope is that my talk, this sermon, will help you better understand the Christian faith. So you won't have a false impression of what following Jesus is all about. Now, before I do this, let me try to describe the importance of this third conversion by comparing this conversion to prayer. Most every religion involves prayer in some form or another. Christianity is no exception. The Bible has about 500 verses about prayer. Prayer is important to everyone who wants to follow Jesus. Jesus prayed a lot. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. So prayer is a big deal. But the Bible has more verses about money than it does about prayer. The Bible has over 2,000 verses about income and wealth. And when I learned that, I thought income and wealth must be a big deal to God as well. I want to read something by an American pastor, Richard Halverson, who used to be chaplain to the U.S. Senate. This is what he wrote. Jesus Christ said more about money than any other single thing. Because money is of first importance when it comes to a person's real nature. Money is an index to a person's true character. All through scripture, there's an intimate correlation between the development of a person's character and how he or she handles money. Now, in my discipline of economics, a lot has been written about money from every angle. Earning money, we've got that covered. Spending money, we call that consumption theory. That gets a lot of attention. Investing money, more has been written about that than you and I could humanly read. Saving money, we talk about that in both microeconomics and macroeconomics. But giving money away, well, there, not so much. What's radical and different about the Christian perspective on money is that the focus is not just on making money to buy things, and having enough left over for our old age. The Christian perspective is also about giving money away. Now, I'm going to step outside conventional economics, and I'm going to rename giving money away, and I'm going to call it an investment. Specifically, I'm going to talk about what the Bible calls tithing, and I'm going to pitch tithing to you as an investment. Now, as Pete's Children know, in my econ classes, I use a lot of graphs and numbers. But for this lesson, I'm going to tell a story. And it's the story that your pastor asked me to tell. 
When I joined the University of Virginia faculty fresh out of grad school, I was a new Christian. And when I got here, I was invited to join a Bible study with a couple other faculty members. And these were godly people that I admired. And I learned that they tithed. That is, they took 10% of their income and gave it to charitable causes, mostly to their church. And not only did they tithe their income, they thought I should tithe my income. And not only did they commend tithing for me, they believe this is a biblical practice for people, for people who are grateful for what Jesus did for them in saving them from their sins and who, as a consequence, want to be followers of Jesus. Now, there are a couple things you should know about me that Pete did not mention. First, I'm of Dutch background, and the Dutch aren't known for throwing their money around. <laughs> Second, as he did mention, I'm an economist, so I think a lot about money. Third, I was not raised in a home of wealth. My mom finished high school, my father did not. Becoming a professor was my first job with middle-class income potential. And so I arrived at UVA, and a couple faculty members that I admired suggested that I start tithing. So what did I do? First, I tried to argue that the tithe was to be applied to after-tax income and not pre-tax income. <laughs> that is, I wanted to get the number down if I could. <laughs> then, I toyed with the idea that the time I spent in church, if I were to value that at the opportunity cost of my time, that could be part of my tithe. <laughs> and what I worried about, since I had started working when I was literally 14 on my birthday when I could get a working permit, I worried that what if this tithing concept is supposed to be retroactive? <laughs> These were concerns. Now, there have been many lessons about what it means to follow Jesus in my life. And one of the greatest of these lessons was these professors patiently but firmly, lovingly, but I have to say directly, telling me that I was missing the point. They encouraged me to do something that seemed radical at the time, and that is to take my gross income and give away 10% of it. And early on, I remember telling these guys, because I was starting to read the Bible, I said, look, it says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, that the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Shouldn't I wait until I can give cheerfully? <laughs> and they taught me that like so many parts of the Christian life, hear me on this, so many parts of the Christian life, you obey first, and then out of an act of obedience, the heart follows. A grad student from China once challenged me about the existence of God by asking me, have I ever experienced a miracle? Have I ever experienced a miracle? And I said, yes. And it was God changing me into a cheerful giver. I now like to give money away, and I claim no credit for that. Only the Lord could have done that to me and for me. Following the biblical precept of tithing by God's grace, changed a stingy, calculating person into someone who now experiences the joy of giving. Now, I tell you this story not to call attention to myself. It's exactly the opposite. I tell you this story to call attention to the grace and power of the Lord and to the wisdom of proportional giving. Now, is a tithe for everyone? Should everybody give away 10% of their income? The short answer is no. 
But in case anyone is breathing a sigh of relief about that answer, let me follow it up with a suggestion. There is so much in the Bible about tithing that if we don't tithe, then as good stewards, perhaps we should be able to go before the Lord and explain why not. If we have close Christian friends or a Christian spouse, we should be able to go to these people and explain why we aren't giving away 10% of our income. If a tithe is not for everyone, what's an example of a person who should be giving less than 10%? Here's an example. I knew a student at UVA who became a Christian over her parents' objections. And some of you might be surprised at how often that happens. And this student asked me now that she was a follower of Jesus if she should tithe the money her parents gave her to attend UVA. And I told her that because of her parents' objections to her faith, I didn't think it would honor her parents if she took 10% of the money they provided her and gave it to a cause of which they disapproved. She should wait until she has a source of income independent of her parents. Do I have an example of a person who should be giving more than 10%? Sure. I recall a conversation with a student who expected, very seriously expected, to be making around $500,000 per year by the time he was mid-career. And the two of us were talking about proportional giving, the proportion being a tithe, that is 10% of a half a million dollars. And he said, there's no way that he could tithe. That would mean giving away $50,000 per year. That was inconceivable to him. And what I never forgot about that conversation is that this student believed that someone making $50,000 per year could tithe that amount. No problem, because that would only be $5,000 per year. And $5,000 per year seemed manageable. Now, this strikes me as a person who should consider giving away more than 10%. Because, well, $50,000 is a lot of money to give away, $450,000 is a lot to keep. This student, by giving more than 10% away, might get rid of some of the absorption that he has with money. At the same time that I was starting to tithe, one of my best friends from graduate school had taken his first full-time teaching job. Now, this was a person that I looked up to enormously. He was my first Christian friend who was my age but had been a believer for a number of years. He was a godly young man. His name is Joe McKinney. And Joe planned to tithe once he got his first teaching job. But Joe planned to do what some people call a progressive tithe. Ever hear of that? In the case of a progressive tithe, you start the first year by giving away 10% of your income, just like a regular tithe. But the next year, you give away 11%. Then the next year, you give away 12%. You get the picture? I call this Milo of Croton tithing. Now, according to legend, Milo of Croton was a Greek who lived in the 5th century BC, so way before Jesus. And Milo of Croton was known for his incredible strength. Some of you guys on the wrestling team think that you're strong. Milo of Croton could pick up a bull and carry it on his shoulders. But do you know how he could do this? He started one day by picking up a calf, putting it on his shoulders and carrying it around. Then he did the same thing the next day with the same calf and the next day. And he kept doing this. And each day, the animal was just a few pounds heavier. And at the end of four years, Milo of Croton could pick up and carry around a full-grown bull. 
I think of adding 1% each year to your tithe as the Milo of Croton theory of tithing. My friend Joe and I are about the same age. I've not asked, but I'm pretty confident he's now giving away about 50% of his income. Every year, I disciple a small number of students. And every year, I tell these students that if they tithe when they start earning an income, two things are going to happen. Two things. First, because the income for most of my students will be much larger than for the country as a whole, some of my students at some point in their lives will make a very significant difference in the life of a church or a missionary or some charity. If you make a lot of money and you tithe, do the math. You can give a lot of money away. And if you do this out of obedience, I predict that you will become a cheerful giver, even if you don't start there. That's point number one. Now, the second point is much deeper. If you get involved in proportional giving, I predict that your spiritual maturity, your walk with the Lord will be enhanced. Now, I hope you hear me clearly on this. This is one of the paradoxes of following Jesus. In the Christian faith, giving is not commended because churches like City Church and ministries like Chi Alpha need our money. We give because giving is an investment in Christian character. The link between giving and investment won't be found in an economics book, but it is found in the Bible. In the United States, churches often ask for money as a means to an end. And very little, I'm sad to report, is taught about what giving does for the giver. John MacArthur said, giving is not God's way of raising money. Giving is God's way of raising children. Every time you give sacrificially, you give a little of your selfishness away. Let me say that again. Giving is not God's way of raising money. Giving is God's way of raising children. Every time you give sacrificially, you give a little of your selfishness away. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 18 and 19 say, Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Now before I finish the passage, I want you to note what does not come next. It doesn't say, in this way they will enable City Church to make its budget. That's not how the passage ends. Rather, the passage reads, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. In his classic Bible commentary, Matthew Henry argues that Paul is charging the rich to think of another world when investing their resources, rather than investing in the material world. And the other world that Paul speaks of is the kingdom of heaven, and that's where our treasure lies. John Wesley connected this verse in 1 Timothy with a verse in Acts chapter 10, verse 4 which says that our giving will come up as a memorial before God. Now, frankly, I don't pretend to know how to fully unpack what that means. But Wesley concluded that true riches are eternal. They are eternal. And they're possessed by those who store up the treasure of a good foundation for the future 
by how they give now. In Luke 16, 11, Jesus ties our spiritual depth to our ability to handle wealth. The purpose of giving is to develop our character to live a life that is truly life. The Bible says that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. That's why this conversion of the pocketbook is linked back to the conversion of our heart. In this sense, tithing really isn't about our money. It's really about the condition of our hearts. Now, if you've been around Christian circles very long, you've probably heard the word stewardship. Stewardship. And you may think it has something to do with how much money you're supposed to give away to the church or to Christian causes. And the implication is, is if you give a lot away, then you're a good steward. And if you keep all your money to yourself, then you're not a good steward. That's how I used to think of stewardship until I came to understand the role of a steward. That's a person who practices stewardship. Now, a steward, you see, doesn't manage his or her own assets. A steward is entrusted with the property or the finances of someone else. So if we think about the role of a steward, then stewardship takes on a very different meaning, doesn't it? An owner can use her resources any way she wants. But a steward knows the day will come when her employer will ask to see the books. And that means that being a steward is simply not deciding, well, how much of our income we ought to give away to the church or other Christian organizations, because what we're giving away isn't really ours to begin with. Stewardship involves what we do with all our resources, our time, talents, money, what we give away and what we don't give away. We might think of these things as ours, but from a Christian perspective, they're not. They are assets that we manage for somebody else. In Psalm 50, we read that the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That's like saying to a cattle rancher, see those cattle over there? You think you own them. They're grazing on what you think of as your property. They have your brand on them. But you know what? They're really owned by the Lord. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, including the cattle you think are yours. You're entrusted to be a steward over the ones on your ranch. Now, if you're like most people who live in the city of Charlottesville, you don't have cattle, but you may have stocks or bonds or income or a house or a car or consumer durables or jewelry or sports equipment or human capital in the form of education and skills. Well, if you have any of those assets, the Lord owns them all, along with the cattle on a thousand hills. Your pastor asked me to tell a story about me, and I did. And now I want to tell you a story about a former UVA student who was involved with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at UVA. His name is Tim. Tim graduated several years ago, but I will never forget him. Uh, Tim was a poor kid by UVA standards. And if you're wondering what I mean by that, over spring break, Tim couldn't afford to go south with the other students. He couldn't even afford to go home. So he stayed in Charlottesville, where he had a part-time job at Alderman Library. My wife Terry and I had Tim over for dinner during spring break. And I observed something I'll never forget. 
A couple weeks earlier, Tim and I, Terry and I learned that this boy's car just gave up the ghost. And we prayed about this, and we wanted to give Tim some money towards another car. But we didn't want Tim to know it was from us. So we tried to do this through our church, but it turned out Tim still learned the money was from us. When he was at our home for dinner, he offered to give the money back because he had decided he could get along okay without a car. Now, Tim's desire to return the money by itself is, I think, remarkable. Offer to help someone buy a car, and they say no? Well, I can't speak for females, but I suspect 95% of the male population wouldn't say no to such an offer. But Tim did. So I countered, and I said, Tim, someday you may want to get a car. You could put that money in a savings account. Until then, I suspect 99% of the population wouldn't say no to that, but Tim did. So I asked him a hypothetical question. Tim, if you had this amount of money that came to you unexpectedly, in econ we have a term for this, we call it a windfall. If you had this amount of money that came to you unexpectedly and you didn't know how to return it, what would you do with the money? Now listen to how this story ends. This UVA undergrad who was working his way through school and was willing to forego owning a car told me that he always wished he had money to give away. He had observed students in his InterVarsity chapter at UVA who were raising money to go on summer missions trips. He couldn't help. He knew the InterVarsity staff guy lived off of donations given to his ministry. Tim couldn't help. He never had the money that he could give away to help these people. And that's what he really wanted to do, was to give the money away to advance God's kingdom. Tim's really better suited to give this sermon than I am. For Tim, giving is an investment in Christian discipleship. And I hope we all encounter people like Tim in our lives. Now let me pray for that. Lord God, by your grace, Make us a people who not only give, but miracle of miracles, we give cheerfully. Place us in a community, this church and other churches around the world, where the iron of generosity sharpens the iron of cheerfulness. That would indeed be. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.
We're going to conclude our time together in prayer. And as we do that, I want to encourage you to allow Ken's sermon to touch your heart. I was sitting over there and I was thinking to myself, I've been part of the church now for 45 years. That was one of the finest sermons I've ever heard on money. It was powerful. It was powerful. As a matter of fact, I felt like, no pun intended, I'd just been schooled in money biblically. As we move forward as a church, the month of October is Missions Month. Our church family has sent out now six people, and you'll be hearing more about this in October, into worldwide missions. We have multiples more than that that serve on grounds at UVA and locally. I want to encourage you to begin to pray about and think about how to support and to give. Not only that, again, next Sunday morning, we're going to take up a special offering for Saran's grandmother's church. That we're going to bless them. We're going to give abundantly to them so that the hand of God will be extended and provide for all of their needs. I also want to encourage you that as you think about your finances, let's together learn to trust God, that we're going to trust Him. Can we pray? God, thank you for Scripture. Thank you for how we are challenged through people who have specific expertise. I pray that you would continue to bless Ken. Bless him as he is a professor that's beloved and he teaches students about finances. God, thank you for the literally over 100 that he has discipled over these years. Lord, we pray that his giftedness would be utilized for the furtherance of your kingdom. Bless him and keep him, cover him health-wise as well. Lord, now we submit ourselves to you and pray that you would bless us through the understanding of your word. Let the faith and the action of our lives connect with what we have learned and help us to walk as disciples of Jesus Christ and not of this world. We pray for this and we believe for it. At the conclusion of this service, if you would like to remain in worship, you can. If you would like to come forward for a special and specific need in your life, at this time our life group leaders and our prayer team will begin to move. And again, if you have a burden or a need, I want to encourage you to go to one of them for prayer. So if the life group leaders and the prayer team could move at this time. And now may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and may he give you his peace. And we believe for this. We pray for this all. In Jesus' name, in Christ's name we pray.